Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You just never know what the kids are going to say. <laughs> you just don't know. That was great. Well, good morning. Real quick, though, folks, I just want to thank, um, just take a moment. Let's give them a round of applause for our wonderful choir, Gerald and Leon, for leading us in music. Thank you. By way, by way of saying, I hope you'll find an hour of your day this afternoon, an hour of your time this afternoon to come join us for Advent Lessons and Carols, where we're going to sing together and have a great time living into this season of Advent. And it's because of their selflessness uh, that we're able to do that. So today, we're in the third Sunday of Advent. And if you read commentaries about these passages that we've heard, Zephaniah and, and from our gospel today, that we, um, many of the commentaries say that we're not, uh, they, they actually tell the preacher, they say, these are some of the hardest texts you'll ever preach on. And if you continue reading these commentaries, they go on to say the reason it's the hardest to preach on is because we don't always like with this particular passage from, from Luke or this, this stuff that John the Baptist is crying out. And sometimes in our day and age, we, 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 count, we throw it up and we call it social justice. And not all of us like social justice. And it's kind of a misnomer because... That social justice movement, sure, it was about justice and about systematic changes in our world led by the church, but really the gospel is kind of social justice. I don't mean to spoil it for you. It's kind of where it is. And it's, that's hard. And it is hard. It is hard. I, I agree with the commentators in that regard that sometimes some passages are hard to hear. And that's okay. If the gospel was always easy to hear, then I would dare to question that we probably are not fully living into maybe where God calls us to. Because lots of times, we're not called always, always to the comfortable. Usually it's to the uncomfortable. Because usually God is calling us into some kind of change, some type of, some type of awareness that we, are, we need to do something. And today's no different. But let's look at Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. Obadiah, Haggai, Amos, goes on and on. The three major prophets, who, one of whom we've heard a lot from lately, is Isaiah, and the other one's Jeremiah, and the other one's Ezekiel. So this particular text comes from one of the minor prophets, and we don't hear from them in the lectionary as often as you might think. And Zephaniah, like Isaiah a couple weeks ago, is right at the time and place where the Israelites are about to be destroyed by the Babylonians. They're getting ready to go into exile. But what makes Zephaniah a little different than the major prophets is this, where God's voice is in this passage and what God says God's going to do. It's interesting. If you read the text, if you're an oppressor, you're in trouble. And the ruling group is in trouble. And if you are someone who's lame or an outcast, and let's look at this text real quick. It says right here, I want to read this exact line to you. It says, I will deal with your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So through the prophet Zephaniah, God is talking to God's people and saying, for those of you who have squandered my gifts, well, you're going to be dealt with. And it's quite a radical dealing with. We know 
the Babylonian exile was not a pleasant thing that happened. And then these folks over here, the, the product or the result of this bad behavior, not only is God going to tend to them, but God's going to turn their shame into rejoicing. He's going to flip it completely around for them. This is a radical approach, and I think it speaks to where God, how God moves in, in the world and how God serves us and how God invites us to serve others. And this is that kind of uncomfortable place the commentators talk about because here they are. I mean, here's the, here's the great struggle. Those who have and those who do not and those who have how they squander it and hurt those who do not. That is the world in which Zephaniah is prophesying to. And that's kind of the world of the whole Old Testament. That's the Old Testament struggle. God's people live away from God and then there's consequences. It happens every time. And if you don't believe me, just read First and Second Kings, and it makes a whole lot of sense. Because the kings follow God, and then they fall away from God, and then something we would probably call terrible happens. But I want to leave this nugget here and come back to it. God never leaves God's people. God never leaves God's people. I'm going to hold that. Now let's fast forward to John, or to the Gospel of Luke, our Gospel reading, and hear about John the Baptist. Here John the Baptist is standing on the side of the Jordan, and he's calling out to all these people who are coming to be baptized to repent. Well, first he starts off with, you brood of vipers. Not the best way to start an introduction. How many people come to your house and you say, you viper, glad you're here. Right? We don't do that. But that's John. John, just, John does what John wants to do. This is the thing you'll learn about the, John the Baptist. He does really what he wants to do, what he feels called to do. So he starts that way, but he's calling them to repent. And they ask, in good fashion, what do we do? This is the million dollar question. What do we do to change the way we're living, to live the way you think we should live? And there's two really important examples that he gives. One is about material things. He says, if you have two coats, give one to somebody else. And that's one of the ways we understand mercy ministries and understand how we serve others and feed the hungry. We get that, okay? That's, Jesus embodies that. The other one is the one that I think makes us always a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe not this particular example, but what it's reflecting. And he talks about the tax collectors. Now, tax collectors in that day and age exploited everybody, but particularly exploited the poor. And if you couldn't pay your debt, to a tax collector, all sorts of bad things could happen to you or to your family. And lots of times the tax collectors would raise their rates well above the tax so that they could live lavishly and have a lot of extra things. So for many of them, even those that earned a wage, they were taking advantage of the people. This is what we would call a systematic injustice, a system that has good intentions and fair intentions that's being used in a way that's not fair or good. And John the Baptist calls attention to it. And the courage it would take, because that is a machine. John the Baptist, by saying what he says, is going up against a machine, a machine that most people would turn their heads down to their toes and not tackle, because they have so much power. Well, not John the Baptist. 
I mean, if you're going to start with brood of vipers, I'm going to go after this. And he does. And he says, stop taking more than you're due. Stop exploiting people and do what you're supposed to do and let the system work the way it's supposed to. And what John's advocating for is justice. It's justice. Justice in the face of an injustice. Fixing something that's broken, that's not working, that's being used, misused for the wrong reasons. And that's what John tells these people that come to be baptized. And it's so important, I think, that we understand the immediacy of John's message, not just for the people that are coming to the banks of the Jordan in his time and day when he walked the earth, but also for us, first for those people who came to the Jordan. This matters because Jesus, for John, Jesus was coming, literally coming. Jesus was going to pop up at the Jordan River to be baptized at any moment. And with that, Jesus' ministry was going to start. And with that, all of this work that John's inviting them to consider doing Jesus would start embodying and inviting them to do as well. When he talks about what the kingdom of God looks like and where the reign of the kingdom of God is. Like that's happening. And these people, for John, really need to repent. Like it needs to happen now. And it's important. And then for us today, as we wonder and wait for what we call the second coming. When's Jesus going to come again? Are we at that point in life where we're looking at our faith journey, looking at our, the whole church, and not just this church, but I mean the whole Christian church, and are we living into what Jesus invites us to do, what God invites us to do? You know, that's the hard part, I think. It's easy, well, it's not easy. It's hard to look at ourselves. I know I struggle with these things. I'm sure we all struggle with these things. But the urgency of John's message, I think, is really important at this particular juncture in Advent as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior another year, but live in that unknowing about when God's going to come again. And are we in that place of repenting? Are we in that place of not just ethical behavior, but truly living in to the kingdom of God, truly embodying that kingdom? You know, I, I know the church, the church, not this, this church, but the church, the Christian church, we have struggled in many ways with this. And I think part of it in the modern era has been the fact that we as a church have gotten so institutionalized. We've gotten so con stuck in the way that we operate that we forgot some of the basic things that we learn in Acts. And we learn from the early church, which is the church isn't the building or the structure, it's the people. We say it, but I don't know how much we believe that. I don't know how much we believe that. In the 1960s, Verna Dozier made that statement. She wrote a book called The Dream of God, and she makes that claim that part of what we have to capture in our life, the dream we have to capture that God has for us, is remembering that we're a people of God. And we're a people of God with a lot of power to do a lot of things with God's help. And I think somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost that voice among, among many things. I know we as clergy, bishops, all of us, we don't necessarily act on the gospel 
in the world in the way that we could because we worry about losing our flock. It's a true statement. We live in that tension of advocating for things that we think the gospel's asking us to consider, looking at systematic things in our world that might alienate or marginalize people, but we generally don't speak about them. We don't speak about justice. Generally, we, we hide behind prayer. And for John the Baptist, prayer is important, but it can't be an excuse to not act. We've all been in that place. I can think of multiple times in my life where I was faced with a hard decision, a hard situation, where I knew the gospel and Jesus wanted me to do one thing, and instead of doing it, I hid behind the banner of prayer, which there's nothing wrong with that, except I needed to act too. I needed to pray and act. And I didn't act. The church has been in that stopgap numerous times. Because we live in the fear, or we let the conversations outside of the sphere of sacred dictate what happens in the sacred. This is the challenge of this text. This is why those commentators said this is uncomfortable, because what I wonder is, for, some, for all those millions of people who don't know anything about the church, as that number grows, that are unchurched, and not even a part of any religion, what do they see when they look at the church? Do they see a group of people struggling to face injustice and, and speak about God's justice, love, and grace? Do they see a mobile church out working in the world, not just in mercy ministries of feeding, but truly addressing the big systematic things of our day, actually practicing what we preach? Or do they see a church that struggles with just handling our own conflict within? Do they see a church that's divided? Do they see a church that can't work through its baggage? Do they see people who sit in their own pews that can't talk about what's really bothering them? They don't have the courage. Do they see that? I wonder this. Maybe you wonder it too. This is the great struggle. The great struggle. The reality is, though, what God invites us to do, what John the Baptist is crying out on the banks of the Jordan thousands of years ago, and what still is relevant to us today, we don't act on this stuff alone. It's going back to that little nugget I said. God has always been with God's people. God has always walked with us. God has always shown us the way. Whether we've liked it or not, God's always encouraged us to face things that are counter to God's kingdom with the love and grace and truth that God instills within us. So going back to Verna Dozier and imagining us as a people of God, we're a people of God with power. And we here at Christ Church constantly have to push ourselves and be that people of God that truly works on our relationships with one another so they don't become hindrances to our work out in the world, so they don't become reasons why we don't serve. We as a people have to know that God is with us when we step out of these walls. We as a people have to know that God has already shown us how we feed the hungry, how we sit with somebody who disagrees with us, how we love somebody who disagrees with us, how we build community with people who disagree with us, how we take hurt and pain and should we learn to forgive. God has shown us all these things. And this is exactly what John the Baptist is crying out in next week. This is exactly what Mary is going to crowd in her song 
of Mary, the Magnificat. This is exactly what they're calling us to notice, to do, to not just sit, but to act, to come gather around this table and see this act of communion as food for a journey, not as food for our own sake, not as something for us just to take in and say, wow, I feel better, I'm going to keep it to myself. But to come to this table and eat this food as a reminder of the hard work we have before us and to remind us who's with us, who gives us the grace and strength, who actually does it with us when we go out in the world and we see things that aren't right, who gives us the courage to act. And believe it or not, us priests and bishops probably, and ministers, not just in the Episcopal Church, probably need to find a little courage. Probably need to find a little courage too to speak out and speak the gospel truth into a world that maybe is losing sight of that. That is the reality of the third Sunday of Advent. That is the struggle of the third Sunday of Advent. The choice to live into God's kingdom, to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, to to seek out God's love, God's grace out in our lives, in our community here and in the world, or not. I mean, this is the great challenge. Do we come here on Sunday just to feel good about ourselves, to check a box? Or do we come and truly live into the dismissal when Becky leads us in just a little while? Do we really believe these words? And do we really live into these words? Go in peace. The peace that you found here and the strength you found here to love and serve the Lord, the one who shows us and the one who's always been with us. Amen.